In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning to you. Good morning. That was pretty good. We have a, a wonderful service for you this morning, a special service with baptisms, as Dean Michael said. And so I'm uh, honored to be able to preach at my own daughter's baptism, one of my kids in the rest. It'll be forever recorded for posterity. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Luke chapter 9. If you don't have one with you this morning, there should be red Bibles in the pew or in the chair seat in front of you or behind you if you're in the first row. Page 867, 867. Our passage this morning, y'all, a great and amazing secret is revealed to the disciples. And it's revealed to us, too, if we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it this morning. God has given us a glimpse a foretaste of the end, the end of history, when the eternal Son is revealed as the glorious one. He's revealed to the world as he truly is, the one and only Savior and King of the entire universe. And we get a sneak peek and a taste of what that might look like and the effect it might have. Now, why does God the Father reveal this Jesus, Jesus' glory and this fact about Jesus in this moment, right now in the gospel passage in Luke chapter 9? Have you thought about that? If you follow the narrative of the gospel of Luke, Jesus is about to fully and exclusively turn his attention to Jerusalem. He's about to embark on the greatest suffering ever undergone by a human being. So isn't it interesting that right before that moment, God the Father would reveal the Son to be the glorious one. And to speak again the words that Jesus heard at his baptism before he had done anything, before he had healed anyone, before he had performed any miracles. This is my Son. My chosen one, the King, the Messiah. Jesus must walk a path of suffering before he takes up his crown and victory in heaven. And so I submit to you, I think the Father is strengthening Jesus for the journey ahead. And reminding the disciples at the same time. That this is the ultimate end and vision that they are striving towards. And so we as Jesus' disciples must take heart if we are to complete our journey and fulfill our calling all the way to the end. Just like the disciples, we've caught a glimpse now before it's happened of what will be revealed in the end so that we have strength and courage and fortitude to follow Jesus 
on the path that he's about to take. We need to be strengthened for what lies ahead so that we might follow Jesus faithfully all the way to the end. As I mentioned, this is a baptism Sunday, and it's not only baby Anders and Autumn that are being renewed and incorporated once again. All of us this morning will renew our baptismal vows and we'll be reminded that we too are followers of Jesus and are called to follow him all the way to the end. And so I hope this morning there'll be words from the gospel passage that encourage and correct us potentially on this journey. We can, in any course of uh, traveling, get off kilter, right? And need correction and new direction and strengthening for the journey that lies ahead. And I think the words that we'll focus on will encourage us and possibly rebuke us depending on, and maybe both at the same time, depending on what side of uh, the spectrum we fall on as we follow Jesus in our, if you're a super optimistic, wishful thinking person in your followership or maybe a, a pessimistic or hopeless person in, in this journey, I think you'll have words that encourage you today. So three things that this passage tells us about who we are as we follow Jesus, that we are, number one, cross-bearing, we're cross-bearing, we're heaven-bound disciples. Cross-bearing, heaven-bound, number two, disciples, followers of Jesus. If you look at chapter 9 of Luke, what is the passage, the famous passage that immediately precedes this glorious vision, this glorious revelation of Jesus. It's Jesus teaching that we must, what, take up our cross and follow him. This passage talks about, it uses a unique word. It says, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The footnote there, as you can easily see, is it's the Greek word for exodus. So we have this amazing scene where two Old Testament heroes, two saints, they're not dead. We serve a living God. 1,500 years in Moses' case, 900 years in Elijah. There they are present in a new and transformed way, but present with Jesus, talking about his exodus. That's a key word. Jesus was about to accomplish the greatest rescue, the greatest exodus, deliverance, that's what that word means, in all of history. And here we have the two Old Testament, greatest Old Testament saints eagerly anticipating Jesus' fulfilling of his ministry. Now, what does this say about what Jesus is about to accomplish? That all the Old Testament history and all the Old Testament figures point towards what Jesus is about to do. Isn't it amazing that these two saints are, it seems like, almost eagerly and, you know, gossip is the wrong word, 
but they were, they were talking with him. They were commiserating. They were saying, wow, Jesus, this is amazing what's about to happen. We want to talk to you about it. Uh, we don't know exactly the details of their conversation, but we know they were talking about his exodus and what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Let this be a sign to us that these Old Testament saints were so eagerly talking about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We, on the other side of the cross, maybe, maybe we grow tired of hearing that Jesus died for our sins. Moses and Elijah did not tire talking about this fact, this event that was about to take place. Moses and Elijah were eagerly anticipating this glorious event of Jesus' exodus. His accomplishing of our salvation at Jerusalem. The vicarious and atoning death of Jesus that would set Israel free once and for all. So, my question to us is, do we appreciate, do we glory in this event like Moses and Elijah were glorying with Jesus? Do we appreciate the realities of the cross in our life? If you're like me, you're forgetful, and you take it for granted. And I think one of the reasons is we don't like to talk about sin and forgiveness, okay? Hurting someone else and seeing the effects of that, being hurt by someone else, is difficult to confront and talk about, is it not? And that's why we go years and years as family members or as friends not engaging the hard realities of sin and forgiveness. Instead, we just want to sweep it under the rug or focus on self-improvement, right? It'll get better. Uh, you know, I'll just, I'll make up for it, right, in time. But the fact is that if we are to be a cross-bearing people, to be followers of Jesus, we have to confront our own sin and have the humility to either offer and or receive forgiveness. And so I think it hits us like this. Uh, we, because we place more stock in our own abilities, we end up responding like Peter. Did you see what Peter did in this passage? We say, God, instead of receiving from you, receiving forgiveness and making that the hallmark of my life to be a repentant disciple, I'm just going to do things for you. So what does Peter say? It's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter embarks on a building project for Jesus. Churches, individuals, businesses, we're all familiar with this. I'm going to build something for you, Jesus. Good and well-intentioned, but ill-informed. Because Peter needs to realize that Jesus is about to accomplish the exodus. For Peter's sake, Jesus is about to undergo the whole suffering of humanity and take it upon himself that he might be freed. And so Peter simply needs to receive from Jesus in this moment. Instead of doing for God, we need to receive from God. 
Another way this applies to us is, as I mentioned, those of us who walk on this life uh, in a good way, perhaps, at times, always positive, always thinking, hey, I, I can overcome this, or I can, uh, I'm just going to uh, not worry about hard things. I'm going to just think the best and have a silver lining about things. And the fact is that we as disciples need to expect suffering. So, if we're cross-bearing disciples, we know that we walk in the way of the cross. That the kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Jesus told the parable about what kind of seed represents the kingdom. It's the smallest seed, the mustard seed. And so all our projects and all our doing for God needs to come under the reality that we are cross-bearing disciples and that we ultimately don't do for God, we receive from God and respond to God's faithfulness. That our life will not be a linear progression of up and to the right. And if you're someone here this morning who's experiencing suffering, don't be surprised at it. If you're like me, you want it to just go away. You say, I'm, I'm not even going to think about this, I'm just going to avoid it and try to move on to the next thing. But the fact is we are called to embrace the suffering and it's through that suffering, through that fiery trial that God puts you through right now in this moment and I know many of you are going through those trials as I look out upon you. That it's through that path that you will receive glory and receive reward. And it's interesting, Peter finally got this himself in his epistle uh, later in your New Testament, he says this, Beloved, beloved friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So number one, we're called to be cross-bearing followers of Jesus. While we're, cross, while we're bearing our cross, however, we're not called to a dreary, drudgery, sad kind of existence. Because while we are cross-bearing, we're also heaven-bound. While we walk as followers of Jesus in the very shadow of death, this way of suffering is the pathway to glory. Here's what I mean. In Jesus, we catch a glimpse of eternity and this is the point of transfiguration. We need to hear this. It's not only Jesus' destiny to be this glorious one, changed before our very eyes, but that's your destiny and my destiny as well. That as disciples of Jesus, we will be glorified, transformed, and changed into the very likeness of God. This is a radical claim that Christianity makes. Those who are baptized into the life of God will one day be changed into God's very likeness. That the image of God bestowed on us at creation when he said, let us make man and woman in our very image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That very image is renewed and restored and glorified in you and me. 
we have eyes to see, we too have been given a preview, a vision that, of the future. And why? I think God the Father gives the disciples this picture of Jesus so that they know as they follow him from Galilee and from uh, northern Israel all the way to Jerusalem that they too must walk this path before they are glorified, before they come into God's presence. So in the interim, while we await our being changed into the likeness of Christ, I think we're called to keep our head up, to not grow discouraged or let our hearts become heavy with sorrow, disillusionment, or resentment. Can anyone identify with those words? This is a challenging word for those of us who tend to live in regret, right? Before I was trying to challenge those of us who just try to live everything in the optimistic future to say, no, we need to embrace our brokenness, our sin and suffering, and bear our cross to receive from Jesus. But then there's the other side uh, of all of us that likes to live in the past, right? That likes to nurse and hold on to the mistakes we've made or the pain that others have caused us, right? We like to live in that because it's safe and comfortable. But Jesus, in his transfiguration, and in our following of Jesus is calling us to keep our heads up, to keep our eyes fixed on the prize and on the final destination, which is our being changed into God's likeness. We're not called to live in the past, but to set our hope on the future so that we might be faithful in the present. And what is that future? Let's be clear on this. It's not just retirement. The future is not just um, freedom from physical ailment. The future is life with God. Peter, it says, did not know what he was saying, but he did say a truth. He said, it is good that we are here. When the cloud of God's presence overshadowed them and he saw the glory of Jesus and Moses and Elijah, that was a glorious moment. And he said, it is good that we are here. And if you've ever experienced that in life, whether in creation or in worship, in God's presence here, it's good when we're in the presence of God. And we need to remember that, have a foretaste of that, because heaven's going to be all that much better. And we need to set our hope, our blessed hope, on being with God in his presence, face to face, as we read today. Let me remind you of an example of the Old Testament that I like to give, and we experience the, uh, in some ways, fulfillment of this every Sunday when we come to communion. What did the Israelites receive as an encouragement and as a foretaste on their journey into the promised land, right? They're going through the wilderness, and they sent out a party of people to gather what from the promised land? The first fruits. And it said the party carried these large fruits. We think maybe it's depicted as grapes on a big uh, stick. It was so heavy that they had two people having to carry it behind them. And they brought these good things from the promised land back into the wilderness as a foretaste of what the Israelites were about to experience. They weren't there yet, but they were given a foretaste of the good and plenty of the promised land. And y'all, we have that every Sunday. We come to the table, we receive from Jesus a foretaste of the heavenly banquet, the bread 
and the wine, the very presence of God in his body and blood given to us that we might be strengthened, that we might be nourished with the first fruits of heaven so that we might walk faithfully on this path, on this journey, yes, sometimes through the desert, so that we might arrive safely at the promised land. Paul said it like this, and this is good for us who want to live in the past and um, we get the cross-shaped part of our discipleship, but we forget the heaven-bound part, the glory part. Okay, Paul says this, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And you see this in the disciples, the very next verse after our passage, verse 37, it says, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, we're not called to live on the mountaintop, are we? God gives us these glimpses, foretastes of his presence, but then we're called to live faithfully in the moment, right now, as we respond to Jesus' presence. Amen? So we're cross-bearing, we're heaven-bound disciples, we're followers of Jesus. We look back to the cross, we embrace suffering, we lean forward to the resurrection, we focus on our heavenly calling. And finally, as encouragement for the moment, right now, we're called this very moment to be faithful. How do we do that? We simply listen to Jesus. It's not rocket science, right? We listen to Jesus right now in the present. Look at verse 35 of chapter 9. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Our followership of Jesus doesn't mean coming up with our own plans. That's what the world would say, right? You're the master of your own fate. You control your own destiny. But as Jesus followers, we know that we have to listen to him first. We have to get directions from him if we're going to know where we're going. You've heard it. Uh, I've heard one pastor say this. Uh, it's just like they taught... Uh, kindergartners when crossing the street, right? What do you do? You stop, look, and listen. And we have to do the same thing every day. We need to stop. We need to cease our striving and our attempts to live life on our own terms. We need to look. We need to look at what God is doing, and we need to listen. We need to listen for the voice of the Father. We're about to enter into the season of Lent, and if you've never experienced even 10 minutes, sometimes it's hard for us to spend five minutes of complete silence, and better yet, silence in solitude, I encourage you to do so. We're in a time where that's a rare commodity, that's a luxury, it's a self-imposed Slavery that we're constantly connected and wired and responding to emails and texts. But this Lent, I encourage you to take some intentional time to stop, look, and listen in silence and solitude to hear the voice of Jesus. And finally, as we turn towards baptisms, I think this is applicable for us 
parents as well. Um, you heard from 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage often read at weddings. And that's appropriate for today because we're about to take some vows as parents and as sponsors and godparents on behalf of these children. We're about to make vows before God and before each other. And you as a congregation will participate in those vows. And this baptism is very much like a wedding. And so we are pledging ourselves and we're pledging our children to Jesus. And so as we raise our kids, Nate and Natalie and, and all of us who have influence in young people's lives, let's remember that we need to listen to Jesus for ourselves, but also for others. That we often, in our well-intentioned uh, plans, can make plans for others, especially our kids, right? And we want to help them. We want to see our kids flourish. But instead of listening to Jesus for what Jesus' plans might be, we say, I know best, and I'm going to build something for you, Jesus, and for my kids, right? And so we need to listen to Jesus. And then finally, as the scripture says, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. We need to give our kids Jesus. We need to receive Jesus, and then having received him, be able to pass that on to those in our lives. So as we turn towards this um, beautiful vow and ceremony, I want to remind you parents and remind myself that it's God making promises to us in this baptism, okay? It's God coming to us. If you notice, the cloud on this mountain came to the disciples and overshadowed them. So this is God's grace here. And this is us simply responding to God's grace. This is us responding in faith to God's faithfulness to us. The Lord is faithful and he will do it, the scriptures say. So we respond to his faithfulness by grace. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Amen. Amen.